culture society offered me a variety of opportunities and the tools they threw me a god in me to be a better man than i ever envisioned i could be help me see who i'm meant to be rather than who i gotta be they building people not prisons what they unlocked in me was so electrified that was a clip from the four tune anthem created by talented artists from the fortune society's music program in their album success stories volume one you can listen to the full album on SoundCloud under Four Tune Society. That's the number four and spell out T-U-N-E, Four Tune Society. I'm David Rothenberg, co-host of the Inside Fortune podcast and the Fortune Society is an organization that has served people with criminal justice involvement since 1967. Our second episode will be System Babies, children who spent their lives growing up in state custody, in and out of the foster care system, and how growing up in these systems led them into prison. I'll be sitting with Barry Campbell, who's the executive assistant to the CEO at the Fortune Society, first arrived here 25 years ago. We'll also be talking with Casimiro Torres, who came to the Fortune Society as a castle resident. The castle is the Fortune Academy's transitional housing program. And Kaz has been involved with Fortune Society, employed with us ever since he concluded his stay as a resident. Welcome, Barry Campbell and Casimiro Torres. The subject, System Babies, which is what we're calling this program, very often you and I have been at Fortune Society talking to a young man or a young woman, and afterwards you'd say to me, a systems baby. And of course, I, as I said, I was a, acquainted with many young men and women who had been raised by the state, but the words system babies is uniquely yours. What is it, how do you, how did you, how do you identify someone who's a system baby? What do you see in people and what is a systems baby? Well, first of all, let me say good morning, Mr. Rothenberg. Good morning, Thank Mr. you for having me. Mr. Um, Campbell, good morning. Uh, a systems baby, in my view, is someone such as myself, um, foster care, boys' home, jail, and then prison. Um, the only real structure that I've ever really known has come at the hands of some form of the criminal justice system. Um, I first entered the criminal justice system at the age of six uh, when uh, I had hit a teacher with a chair and I was taken to family court. By that time, I had already run away from home on several occasions. and. My mother was a single parent. She was hardworking. Um, she was one of the few colored people to have a executive assistant job on Madison Avenue with a top ad agency. And um, I was a very troubled child, and um, it's taken me years of therapy to figure that out. But a systems baby is someone such as myself, someone that was raised by the system. But wh how do you... Rec I, w I was <clears throat> always interested in... And just talking with someone casual, not casually, but about the, whatever problems they're facing, that you would frequently turn to me afterwards and say, systems, baby, as if they were, in an adult person, that there were characteristics in their everyday behavior that indicated that they were raised by the state. Well, well, one of them is, is a lack of trust in any shape, form, or fashion. Um, you tend to rely on yourself, and you depend on yourself. Um, your survival is solely depend on your instincts. And so as you grow up like that, 
you learn not to trust anybody. Everybody that you come in contact is held at arm's distance. And you mentioned it earlier when you were talking about a gentleman when he said he can't remember ever being hugged. There are people that are living their lives like that, that don't have anyone that cares more about them than they do themselves. It's very strange when you don't have the love of a parent. You know, a parent's job is to protect you and love you and teach you how to deal with the real world. When you don't have that parent and you're being raised by the system, unless you're lucky enough to find someone that will take an interest in you, which is very rare, and someone that can stick with you throughout the rest of your life is very rare because if you're in the system, if you're in foster care, you're moving from home to home. If you're in boys' home, you're moving from home to home. You're very unstable. Why, why the moving? Why, well, if you were the foster parent, why the move? Well, sometimes it has to do with foster care itself, you know, the capacity for the family to keep you. Um, sometimes they only leave you for six months at a time or three months at a time in a house. And, you know, at any given moment, they could come in and say, all right, Mr. Campbell is being moved to another foster care house or Mr. Campbell's being moved to another boy's home. Um, when I was in the foster care system, I believe I went through a series of about four foster mothers. And when I was in the boys' home, I went through a series of three different houses from Brooklyn and two in Queens, one in Jamaica and one in Richmond Hill. Well, let, 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 let me stop you there. Describe, uh, well, let's t t take the boys' homes. Uh, what, how many were there? Are they apartments? Are there buildings? Are there counselors? Is My there any nurturing? The, 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 first, the first boys' home stop for me was St. Vincent's Home for Boys, which was on 66 Baum Street. Born place. I think there were about 150 um, individuals living there, ranging from the ages, well, of course, I was the youngest one at the time, ranging from the age of nine all the way up until 17 when you age out. And there were some people that were even older that were still in the program because they had no one to age out to. And what was what was the atmosphere in the place? Was it? Did you have rooms, dorms? We had counselors. Uh, well, you caring. Had, you had counselors. A counselor was assigned for each dorm, and it was built on a tier system where you would where you would earn the right to go into a single room. And so you had um, large dorms which had about thirty people in it. You had four man rooms. You had two man rooms, and you had one man room. And everything was based on the merit system. Um, we got a weekly allowance. Um, and your week, weekly allowance was based on the color of your grade, and the colors were blue, green, and, of course, gold when you hit the gold status. Um, they provided us with all of the necessities to, to, to survive on a day-to-day -day basis, with the exception of a hug and a kiss and to say that you were loved. Was there any, any nurturing? Any, did you, do you recall any supportive, uh, encouraging yes, things? Yes, yes, yes. Um, because, because I was the youngest person, um, taken into St. Vincent's Home for Boys, um, a gentleman by the name of, uh, uh, well, Father Harris took a, took a keen interest in me. I think the problem with that is that by the time Father Harris had gotten to me, I had already had a love for the streets. At such an early age, I had a love for the streets. Well, could you walk out of the of the training schools or, or those homes anytime? Yes, yes. The doors were the doors were constantly you could open. Run away. You could run away. You could go in and out. You know, uh, there was a curfew, and it was built on the honor system. You had to adhere to your curfew. Well, I, we'll get back to your specifics. But what do you? Uh, my initial questions were about what you see in others. Obviously, a reflection of yeah, your own experience. But how does it manifest itself that when you? You said that the lack of trust, but how do you detect lack of trust in a conversation with someone or if they come to fortune for whatever reasons people coming out of institutions come? 
you know, David, uh, I haven't been able to put a word to it, but I can tell you it's, it's something that I see in Fortune every day happening between clients and staff. It's that identifying factor, that common factor that's there. And sometimes it's not something that you can speak, taste, or touch. It's just a feeling. It's just when you walk up to somebody and you meet them, there's, there, there's a kinetic energy that happens. And you can look into someone's eyes and see the devastation that they've gone through in their life. Not with specific details, but you can look at somebody and say, wow, this kid has had a hard life. His eyes don't trust anybody. His body language says, leave me alone. And that's all he wants to be is left alone because he doesn't know anything else. In your case, you said you were first place into home in seven. I referred to Bob Brown and Chuck Bogansky, who I had met years earlier, who at birth were abandoned. Can you tell the difference between someone who's had those first five or six years in a possible nurturing experience with someone who had none whatsoever? Yeah, you, you, you definitely can because there's, there, there's some sense of understanding that I know what it is to be loved. I know what it felt like to be loved. And so they, they search that out. They search that feeling. They, they search for people in their lives that care about them like that. Um, when someone has never experienced it, it's so easy to see. It, it, it really is. Bob Brown said to me, this is the man who had been abandoned at birth and had ended up in prison doing 28 years. And he said that from his experiences that he thinks those first five years are absolutely crucial. And that when he committed his heinous crime that got him 25 to life in prison, the paper said he showed no remorse. And he said he survived by suffocating feelings about himself and therefore he was incapable of showing feelings for anyone else. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, David, because um, I guess I was kind of luckier than most system babies. Um, I did have, you know, my formative years from birth up until the age of about five. I was living in England with my grandfather. And just so people could get a quick backdrop, when I was living with my grandfather, I had my own bedroom and I had my own playroom. I had a backyard. And, you know, my grandmother passed away and my mother had to come and pick us up. She had she had went on to America ahead of us and she was going to bring us in later on. When my grandmother died, she had to come and get us immediately. So I went from having my own bedroom and my own playroom to living in a one bedroom apartment with seven or eight people um, sleeping in a bed head to foot. And so I couldn't understand what was happening, what was going on at the time. I didn't know what poverty was. So in the recesses of your mind as a seven or eight-year-old in those different homes, you knew that there was something better. Yeah, I knew, I knew that my grandfather was out there and he loved me with Why, all his heart. But in your specific <clears throat> instances, how long were you in homes? Where were they and were they supportive families at all? Um, some of them were supportive families. Um, I was at one place on, on, in, on Lincoln Place in Brooklyn, um, and I remember um, a woman by the name of Miss Driscoll. And uh, she, was, she, she was somebody who truly cared about me, and she cared about the other children that she had. But um, due to financial situations, you know, we were living in, a, in, in, in squalor, so to speak. And so my, my, my time there was very limited. It's almost like it was a way station or a foster home hub where kids would go until they could determine or find a much more permanent place for them. And so just as I started to make connections with Mrs. Driscoll, I was pulled out of the house and sent someplace else. Who, who determines that? 
I don't know, you know, David. I was a young child at the time. Mm -hmm. I know the foster system is not the same as it was back in the 70s, but I mean, at that time, it was very traumatic for me. Uh, we're talking with Barry Campbell. Uh, we're we're going to move on. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to play some music that will introduce Casimir Torres, and then we'll talk about how all of this led into the from the systems babies into the prison system, which seems to be an inevitable uh, transition. Casimir Torres, good morning. Good morning, David. And your story, not dissimilar to Barry's, uh, you were taken away and became a, a systems baby. At what age? I was actually, um, <clears throat> I was born in a children's home and hospital in uh, Baltimore. I came to Brooklyn when I was two, but I was in a, a couple of institutions early on when I was probably like three or four. And then... Um, when I was six, it was, you know, when I have the most uh, recall of my experiences. You were, you, all the children, you were one of many. Yeah, I was one of many. And what happened? You were living with your mother. Yeah, I was, I was living with my mother. And let me tell you about the first uh, uh, true experience I had. I was six years old. Uh, it was February 10th. And it was one of my brother's birthday. And we uh, believed that we were going to a birthday party for him. Um, we went somewhere, and somebody just came and took us away. So it was it was completely unexpected. How many were you, how many kids were there? There were six of us initially. Uh, that were, there's nine of us altogether, but it was six that were taken away at that point. The others were older and out. And were you separated? Were you? We were actually uh, we were brought to a um, an institution. Upstate, which was, I guess, the you know the hub for that particular institution because they had a, a various group homes and foster places all over the uh, the state, and um, the uh, the place that I w was brought to was in um, Rockland County, and we got there. It was at nighttime. It was snowing. It was dark, and pretty much immediately we were separated. And at you know the, the whole experience was. Um, was really, really scary because we had no idea what was happening or why it was happening. So um, I was brought uh, somewhere with one of my brothers, my brother Nino. The rest of my siblings were sent to various places. And uh, next thing I know, it was just somewhere else. And what happened when you, the place was what, where you were put and, and, and what was the setup? Well, I was I was put in, in a sort of like an intake building. There was, there was cottages there, as you referred to earlier, similar setup. There was a lot of cottages. Soon, um, soon after I arrived and was separated, uh, my brother and I was sent to one of these cottages, and um, my experience was uh, dissimilar to Barry's in, in a way that it was um, it was brutal. Mine wasn't. It, I mean, your meets were met, but I mean, were met. But there was a number of ways that it was, uh, you know, a horrible experience. I mean, I couldn't even begin to count the ways, but. I mean, besides the physical abuse and uh, the mental abuse, and I mean, there were there were little things they did like um, you would be provided food and clothing and stuff like that, but uh, little things were like um, if you grew attached to something or uh, if you if somebody brought you a gift for your birthday or whatever, they would give it to someone else. They would do little things like that that to a child is you know horrible you know, and that was. Sometimes I, I felt that more and then the um, so physical six, abuse. You were six years old. Were you going to school? 
Well, I had to catch up on school. I actually just recently got the records from the state of what happened. And I know my records say that when I arrived, I was uh, malnourished, underweight. I had lice. I had uh, bruising. And then, you know, the medical records in the institution, I had a lot of accidents. Uh, they were constantly described as like an accident playing baseball or basketball. But I vividly remember what happened when I had a ruptured eye or, um, you know, a broken bonus. I know exactly what happened, and it wasn't a sports accident. But well, the medical records said otherwise. It was, was it a staff person or, another, sure, or sure. another kid? My first tooth that I lost was a result of getting punched in the face by an adult male when I was uh, Did, was six. There fight, were there fights among the kids? Yeah, and the kids would jump each other and stuff, and that, that was one of the ways I got uh, my eye ruptured. And um, uh, my brothers and I would fight with a lot of people because we had to, you know. How long were you in a facility like this? I was on and off my my entire childhood. In in homes? Yeah. Like that? No foster families? No, I wasn't in any foster families. I was just um, in group homes and institutions at various degrees of security. But were you in touch with your mother? There was Your father was not present? No, no, no. And I didn't know my father at the time. It was something that happened with him and my mother, and he completely lost contact with us for most of my life and and when you were in the home did your mother visit or did, were you my mother did visit home? from time to time rarely uh, but she did and um, you know she had her own problems she was an alcoholic which is what eventually caused her death when I was 16 but um, she was a good person you know just she was an alcoholic so it was very difficult for people that I see these people every day you know they're good people they're just addicts or alcoholics or whatever well it, but the state came, did the state come and take you because she called and said, I can't handle them? Or she did, did. Or did authorities come and say to her, you can't be a mother? Well, the, the thing is back then, the belief was that when it got to that point where she couldn't handle us or take care of us, whatever, or provide for us, it would be better for her to call and ask them to take as, as opposed to them coming and taking us. Whereas if she called, she would have uh, an easier time getting us back when she was prepared, you know, because it was of her own free will. Uh, whereas the state would take us, it would be them who determined when we came back. And these are training schools, not homes, like Barry was describing. Uh, it depends what type of training we're talking about. Well, can, were you allowed to leave it at any point? Or were you no, no, I, I left uh, uh, innumerable times, but it wasn't because I had permission. Were there wires or walls? Well, some places. It depends. Because I got into a lot of trouble, uh, as my brothers did, and we was breaking into places. We were acting out. And, um, you know, we, at one point they locked us in this closet for like two days, you know, with no windows or nothing. I remember that experience vividly. Can you remember the names of these places and do any of them still exist? Well, I was at St. Vincent's. I was at St. Agatha's most of the time. I was at um, Mount Loretta. Which you know, which was really are these all in Westchester and Rockland? No, no, in Westchester there was Abbott House where I was, and uh, in Rockland was St. Agatha's. But St. Agatha's, I was also in group homes that they had in the Bronx, Spring Valley, uh, and other places. So you could walk out. Yeah, you could walk out some of these places. But some of the places, then, then when you got into trouble, they locked you up. Yes, one. I got into trouble, and they sent me to uh, one of these colleges that was much more secure. Did you ever, was, were you ever sent to Spofford? I think I went to Spofford, but I, I don't remember my experience there. It was probably really brief. And, and this was until you were 18? No, no, a little younger than that, probably around 16. 
I mean, you were in the custody of this. You were a state child. Yeah, yeah. Till sure. you were sixteen, sure. and then when you, aged, I was either in 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 the uh, institutions or living in the street. But then when you aged out, what? Where do you go? Prison. It, <laughs> That's where you go, pretty much. And uh, I mean, it, don't take my word for it. Check the statistics. Well, we'll we'll get to that whole thing of that. The these homes are a, a obviously. No, at sixteen, I was in Rikers Island. I was burying. Um, Bodies on Hearts Island for a couple of years. It, it's overwhelming, and it's so obvious because you hear this story over and over again. Chuck Bergansky, who I t told the story about, the the white kid who wanted to be adopted by a yeah. black family, he he always said that when he went to prison, it was he realized years later it was like a kid that went from high school to college that he had finally made the big time, and he ran into. He said he fit in because he ran into 100 guys there that he had done. It's a natural progression for, uh, for us unless we're really severely sidelined by something else, more than likely uh, an individual who makes a strong impression. Throughout, you know, throughout your youth in places like this, you're, you, know, you, you, you do run across some really kind, genuinely kind people. I had a, I had a gentleman, his name was Mike Crawley. He's a tall black man, and he, he used to uh, take me places and uh, Where was and it? give me. This was in Saint Agatha's. He was. They had people that they called uh, volunteers, who who were also counselors, but could be a volunteer as well. Would take you with them for the weekend and stuff like this. And uh, he was one of the uh, the kindest men I've ever met in my life. One of the most genuine people I've ever met in my life. And people like that, kind of like you know, being in the room with no air and every once in a while getting a breath. He was you know that breath. That type of person. Barry Campbell and, and uh, Casimir Torres, you both, in telling us uh, stories of your childhood, alluded to between the times you were in training schools and foster homes that you were on the streets. At what ages were you, when you say on the streets, were you living on the streets? Where did you sleep? How did you eat? What, did, what was the survival mechanism for uh, kids your age? And what, at what ages? Um, Barry I, Campbell. Uh, I actually started. Uh, running away from home at the ripe old age of about five or six. Um, so I would run away and go two blocks over to, I believe it was New York Avenue and Brooklyn uh, in Brooklyn, on New York Avenue and Leffitt's Boulevard in that area. And there was an apartment building and I used to sleep under the staircase. And my house was two blocks away. At the time, I thought that, and, and it's, it's taken me years of therapy, at the time I thought that if I was a bad boy, I would get sent back to England to my grandfather. So I was acting out in every shape, form, or fashion that I could find. Um, for a five, six-year-old child, they don't understand what's going on, that they have to be in a certain place. How'd you eat? I ate by stealing. You know, I would, I would, I would run by the fruit stands and snatch fruit. Um, the pizza shops used to have the ices out in front of the pizzeria, and I used to run by and open it up and scoop my hand in and take off running. Um, I bagged groceries in the A.M.P. food store. I used to walk in the supermarkets and walk up and down the aisles, opening and eating food. Um, you know, I ate at Salvation Army trucks when I could. I, I would eat anywhere. And in some cases, out of the garbage cans and off the street, somebody threw away a half a hamburger, and I seen it. I'd pick it up and eat it. Casimiro, you're nodding your head. Yeah, yeah, pretty much the same things. I, I was just thinking about walking up and down the aisles of the supermarket. I did that for a while until I, I discovered the conveyor belt in the middle of the aisle that went down to the basement where all the food was. And I would simply scooch onto the conveyor belt and go down to... 
the basement, then I wouldn't have to walk around. I'd just age? sit there and eat. Um, it, you know, when when I was when I was really young, I'd run away, but I was uh, usually upstate somewhere, so I'd end up in the woods somewhere. You know, and, and and not being like Daniel Boone, I couldn't really forage too much in the woods, so I wouldn't get too much to eat. Eventually, I would um, uh, try to find somebody's backyard or something somewhere I could break in and get some food. But as 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 I got older, I started finding my way to the city from upstate or uh, wherever I was, and then I would the supermarkets, um, snatch things off hot dog carts, various different you know venues uh, such as Barry mentioned earlier, but pretty much wherever you can get it, including like you said, uh, the garbage. I remember I was walking with you on 34th Street near 8th Avenue, two little boys, maybe seven or eight, for lack of a better description, ragamuffins, on skateboards. Yeah. Going, do you remember this incident yeah. going through? And you looked at me and said, that's my brother and me. Yeah, we did that in uh, Penn Station. You know, between institutions, I was with my mother, and, and very often we were in, like, welfare hotels, like the... The Martinique. The know? Martinique Radisson was just the Martinique back then, and it was a notorious welfare hotel. And the Granada down by Brooklyn Academy of Music, I believe it's a parking lot now, was another one that was really bad. But um, these places, I mean, I, I can tell you something that, that uh, I just recently realized. You know, in this one room, uh, hotel room, I remember that I would sit in, in that room in the dark all day, just sit in the dark and stay in bed all day. And now I know, you know, having the experience I have and the education I have, that this was severe depression, you know. And it, it, it culminates into, into something that's, you know, much more much more devastating, like a suicide attempt. I always remember I, um, I had told this story years ago, and you said to me, I was a child at the Martinique. In, in about 83 or 84, some women contacted me whose husbands were in prison, and they were at the Martinique, and I went to visit them at the hotel in their room, um, uh, hot plates, which yeah. were illegal. Yeah. Uh, children running up and down the halls, light bulbs broken, and I saw all these kids running around, and I came out, and I think I said, I don't want to see those kids in 20 years. They are ripe. They are just ripe for for crime and prisons. And uh, when I told that story, you and Victor Rojas both said to me, I was a Martinique baby. Barry and, and Kaz, are there places now that are like that? That Do you see your little selves in kids, in institutions, or is the shelter system, is that what that is now? The shelter system is pretty bad from what I've, I've seen, but um, I don't know if, of, if the institutions are the same. I hope they're not, but I couldn't say. I haven't been in any of them lately. The one that I was in in uh, Rockland County is a park now. I will say this much. Um, the disturbing part for me is that I'm seeing little kids with my behavior that are living at home. When you say little kids, what age are you? I'm talking about Five. 10, 11, uh. 12, 13 year olds. I, um, I'm seeing them in the streets and they're exhibiting the behaviors that I did as a child at that age. But the only difference is, is that they're living at home with their mothers or their grandmothers or their fathers and their mothers. And that's the disturbing part to me is that that behavior is being exhibited by somebody who's for lack of a better term, supposedly being raised in a family. But we don't know what's happening. We don't know. That's the point. I'm saying that we don't know what's happening in the family. So, but street life was sleeping. Sleeping uh, wherever, you Well, know. on a day like this, you slept. Low, lower level of Grand Central Station. Yeah, um, was, Grand Central point. Station has several lower levels to it. And as a child, you slept there? Yeah, as a child. Nobody noticed things back then. As a child. 
And it's so funny because the way that you gain access to it is that you find yourself a subway track, and underneath the subway track, there's a little cubby hole underneath it, and when you go in, it opens up to a whole new world. You'll crawl between some pipes and stuff, but once you get past the pipes, it opens up into a whole new underworld. There are people living down there that never come up. They never come up and outside. They grown stay ups. down. Grown-ups. Yeah. They but stay down there. Are there yeah. many children down there? There are some children down there also. Yeah. At, at any point, did either of you think that there's something else or what, this was it? Much later on for myself. No, but as a child, do you ever have no. any relationship? No. You know, I'm sitting here right now and I'm fighting back the tears because, you know, it's very hard to think about yourself as an adult to think about yourself as a child and to have no hope. I don't know if you heard me. I was t tell that line about it. I was with a group of young kids and I, someone said there's light at the end of the tunnel and this kid said, yeah, it's a train coming straight at me. I've, I've had that... Uh, I've experienced that so many times that I've given up. I think that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed the street life so much because it wasn't a prerequisite to have someone to love you. You know, in the streets, all you had to do was be the biggest, baddest, and the meanest person out there. And, you know, for a child that, that, that doesn't know what it is to be loved or to be hugged or to be told that, you know, you're somebody who's worth something, you're going to be something, um, that lore of the streets is, is, is comfortable to you. You know, the violence, you, you, you know, the attitude that I'm the most important thing in the world and I'm the only thing that matters in the world. It's very easy to do when you don't know what the hell love is. Well, it sounds like a survival mechanism. So we, we got to the point where you're both 16 and that's when prison entered. At what points did you get arrested for what, if you, if you want to share that? And, and how did you adapt to the prison experience? I actually started getting arrested much earlier, probably around 11 or 12, but when I first went to jail... Well, excuse me, because you had also said, I've heard you say that you started getting high at the age of 10, and I, I overlooked that. That's an, um, uh, an important fact. A 10-year-old, how and why and... Well, in my, and, you know, in my home, when I, when I was home, or in institutions, I was constantly surrounded by drugs, but, you know, my home environment in particular, uh, earlier than six, you know, there was... Uh, there was a lot of people. I was surrounded by people that uh, were using heroin, uh, smoking weed, or drinking, and ODing, and falling down drunk, and everything. And that was what I saw every day and every night, and well into the night. You but know? they gave it to it. How did as a uh, when as I was ten tenure. years old? Um, there was a girl that me and my brothers knew, uh, and we knew the guy who sold. Back then, they sold loose joints and stuff like that in the street. And you know, we you, you get a joint for a dollar and stuff like that, and we and we bought one and. They sold it to a 10-year-old? Sure. I mean, drug dealers are not the most ethical people. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. But, but you know, people, and, 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 and for, you know, for in, even till now, you know, people consider weed harmless and stuff, even to children. So, But, but you found drink and, and... Well, alcohol I tried much earlier than that. I probably drank um, sangria And that was, was part four. of your survival mechanism as a kid? Well, it, it was. I mean, I guess yeah. You could say it was part of my survival mechanism. But it, I mean, after your first experience with drugs, if you're, if you you were a child like I was, it was required to to be able to survive reality. It was. It, it, you needed to alter it. You know, when I used to do uh, counseling, you know, I used to ask people most of the time, you know, that had addiction issues, why do you get high? You know, and inevitably the person would say because it makes me feel good. Which would follow, I would ask him, you know, well, what do you feel bad about? Yeah. 
And that's pretty much what it is, you know. Was it drugs that led you to the adult prison system? Sure, you know. Um, you know, when you're younger, you steal for food. If you get into addiction, you eventually steal to support your habit. And that's when everything comes, you know, goes out the window. When you're a kid, you may eat out of the garbage and, 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 and steal candy bars and hot dogs and stuff like that to survive. But when you're older, you're stealing for drugs becomes something that can include violence and uh, other things, you know. So at what age, Kaz, did you hit the prison system and how, where and how did you adjust to it? You know, I, I hit the prison system when I was 16, uh, right after my mother died. Actually, the, the day after my mother died, I was arrested. And um, I went to Rikers when I was about 16. I had a legal aid attorney who convinced me to take a year on the spot, and I did. Looking back, obviously, it was foolish, but I did, and I went into the adolescence. And when you go into adolescence, it's going to war, simple as that. That's the way it was when I was a kid. Nothing new with all the exposés about Rikers Island now. Uh, Rikers the- Island now is, is probably, you know, still not a pleasant place to be. But, it's exactly but in my like- opinion, it's, it's not even nearly as bad as it was. So you did a year on Rikers, and then you went upstate on a new No, no, I did a year in Rikers, and then I did another year in Rikers. But I was in Hearts Island most of that time uh, doing the uh, cemetery work. And how did you adjust to Rikers? You fight. First thing I did was shave my head. And then, you know, you get into a lot of fights and stuff. And you went up north when? To the state penitentiary? Uh, I kept going to Rikers for a while. And then I probably went up when I was about um, 1920. I went to prison. And and you adjusted? Yeah, I adjusted. Just like everything, I just, just, you know, I'm well prepared for this. Did you run into people that you knew from the youth houses? Actually, you know, it was funny that I, I, I was on a, I was shackled on a bus uh, going to Attica at some point, and uh, the guy was shackled to, was with me in a group home in uh, upstate. So that gives you credibility. Well, I guess it does give you a certain credibility, but it 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 obviously means you're not a guy that just made your first mistake and ended up in jail. Pretty pretty much, people can read people. Like Barry said, there's certain things that you can read about people that you know don't need to be said or spoken. Barry, at what point did you hit the uh, adult system? I hit the adult system at about sixteen. No, at about seventeen years old. I was 17 years old. I had aged out of the uh, St. Vincent's Home for Boys. I aged out of it. I was sent back home to my mother. And before two shades of a blink, I had left my mother's house and was staying with my grandmother. And my first real contact was for a stolen car. I went on to Rackers Island as an adolescent. Where were you going in the car? I can't remember, you know. I just, rem- just I can just re- I I can remember it was it was three of us it was nighttime, we walked into the parking lot. A friend of mine took out a screwdriver. He went and popped the lock of the door, and before all of us could get into the car, the police were all over us. And um, at that time, they took me to Rikers Island. It was my first time in Rikers Island. I'd been to Spofford before as a child, and um, it was my first time on Rikers Island. I was put into the house, adolescent house, in the four building. And the moment I got there, I got into a fight. Did you see people you had known from the youth house? Yes, yes. I saw people that I had known from from the boys' home, and I would saw people from my neighborhood uh, where my mother lived. And so I was pretty much comfortable there. But because it was my first time in jail, everyone wanted to see if I was going to stand up for myself. 
So the moment I got into the house, I even think that they sent this guy to test me and to see if I was going to fight. Um, when the fight was over, it was like being inducted to a lodge or a secret society because after the fight was over, we all went to the back and we ate Cheez-Its and Slim Jims and they were all talking about how, such, how, a, how a great job I did. And I remember that feeling. It's kind of like getting high for the first time. For the rest of your time in jail at that, for that period that I was there, I was looking for that feeling. So I went around beating people up. Did you get high in jail? No. You did on the street? I did on the street. All right. So how much time did you both do? How many arrests? Because your stories are copied over and over again, people in institutions now. I want to find out how you broke the cycle because you grew up in the system. Kaz, how long did this go on? Well, my arrest was uh, 67, and... Um, the year? That's, you had 67? The amount, amount of arrests. All drug-related? Yeah, all drug-related. I mean, this doesn't count the childish arrests, the stuff that happened when I was a kid, but um, I, I ended up doing about 16 and a half, 17 years. Years in know. prison? Yeah, yeah. And, and you're how old now? I'm 47. And your last time in prison, you were how old? I left Sing Sing in uh, 2003, and then I spent a little bit of time in the Rikers for a couple of years. So, so my last time was in 2005. And Barry, you you did how much time, how many arrests? Um, I don't have the number of arrests, but I do know that my rap sheet is 33 pages long. <laughs> and I did, one day I sat down, after coming home from upstate, I sat down and I calculated 10 days here, 5 days here, 30 days here, 6 months here. It's, it's about close to 28 years. So, so you both represent the kind of f felony... And, and misdemeanor background where the system pretty much says they're incorrigible, they can't change, yet you've both broken the cycle. That's what we want to find out, how you did it, what, what were the circumstances. No thanks to the system. Well, we'll find out what the hmm. thanks are, too. Barry Campbell and Casimir Torres, everything in your lives as children said, you're no good. You end up in prison, which reinforces that, and yet you broke the cycle because at some point you had to say, I'm worth something. Where does that come from? And then where do you go with it? Uh, That's not an easy question, I know. Well, you know, for me, I actually have pinpointed the exact moment. Um, I was 27 years old. I had just been taken to downstate prison. I was going through orientation. I had gone up from Rackers Island with three other people that I was very close with. We were running wild on the island, so to speak. Kaz, you'll know what I'm talking about mm -hmm. when I say that. When you say the island, you're talking about Rikers Island. Rikers Island. Um, not, not East Hamptons. <laughs> not, not, no, not, not, not the East Hamptons. And so when we got um, to downstate, I was in a very angry place. And so when I got to orientation and I was told to strip and bend over and cough, I refused. And I got the beat down of a lifetime. Downstate was a, an adult prison. It, it's an adult reception uh, for all of state prison facilities at that time. Yeah. And um, now they have Ulster and a couple of other hubs that they so use. You, but, but let me ask you this. You knew that you didn't want that anymore. But how do you know that there's something else and how do you find well, it? Well, after the beat down, I was sitting in the box and they took me from the box to the infirmary. And while I was sitting there, I had a lot of time to read and think. 
And I started thinking about my family. As I mentioned earlier, when, when, when I first came to this country, it was about eight of us in a one-bedroom apartment. And by the time I was 27 years old sitting in prison, my grandmother had bought two brownstones in Bushwick. My aunt was studying to be a registered nurse. My other aunt was working, was a bookkeeper in the New York State Department of Sanitation. My mother, of course, was an ad executive. My sister was a registered RN nurse. She was studying to be a nurse. My uncle was in the Army. And I said to myself, I have the genetic makeup for success. Why can't I find it? Barry, you said you were, but you were reading. And many of the men and women that we meet can't read. I was very lucky. Um, I dropped out of school in the eighth grade at the time when I was in St. Vincent's Home for Boys. But one of the things that I always had was I always had an aptitude for reading. I could read and understand, comprehend very well. I'm, I, was, I was terrible at math, but if you gave me a math book, I would read it and reread it and read it until I got it. And by the time I was done with the math book, I understood everything in it about the math problems. So what do we do about the many young, well, we'll get to the many young men that, and women that can't read yeah. that are in the system. Um, but you, but let's, get, let's continue with your story that what, when you wanted something else, then what, how did you go about it? Um, I first thing I did was I when I got out of the infirmary, I went and tried to register for school. I wanted to get my GED. At that time, you either worked or you went to school. School was full. School was full to capacity, so I had to go to work. Um, being the criminal-minded individual I was, I went and stole a pass off the officer's desk and wrote out a pass to go to the library. I went to the library and I stole a GED book. I put it in my uniform under my shirt and took it out of the library because it was one of those books that said, do not remove. And each night in my cell, I was I, my cell was fortunate to be by one of the 24-hour lights in the hallway. So at nighttime, I would sit down by my cell and I would read and read and reread and read again and read over and over and over again until when I finally went and took the... Um, the uh, the GED test, um, at that time, you needed to get a 225. I hit a 295. Um, I was the valedictorian for uh, Mount McGregor Correctional Facility at that time. and um, Were you shocked by that? I was very shocked by it. Um, and I went into my first semester of college while I was still incarcerated. Um, I think for me... The turning point was when I looked at myself and my family and realized that success was something that I could obtain. I just needed to focus. And like I said, you know, I knew even growing up as a child, I knew that my grandfather, um, my grandfather loved me and wanted me. But he, I didn't understand that he couldn't take care of me. It wasn't until I got older. So right. I had people who loved me. So you knew the feeling. Of I being knew the loved. feeling of being loved, and so, I knew what success was. So inside reading, education was a key, yes. a door opener. Then you came out. Yeah. Um, when I came out, I had reserved myself um, to never go back. And everyone, and please, let's not make no mistake about it because they say, you know, this, the, when you see it on the media and the news flash, it says this parolee was released two months ago and already every, every single person when they're released has that feeling that I don't ever want to come back. But some people can't figure out what to do. I was fortunate enough that I figured out what to do. I said the first step was to go to work. I had to work like a normal citizen would go to work every day. I had to stay with it. No matter what I was going through, no matter what I was feeling, no matter how badly I wanted to hide from my real feelings and get high, 
I, I, I knew that I couldn't do but it. But who would hire? That's the, that's the problem in our society. So you come out motivated, but all your, your whole resume is prison. Who, yeah. would, who hired you? Well, I came out and I did the jobs that, you know, most people coming from my background would laugh at. I was a messenger. I worked in a fast food restaurant. I delivered packages. You know, I remember at one point I had a messenger job at J. Walter Thompson on 466 Lexington Avenue. And then at 1 o'clock, the, the messenger job was part-time. And then from 1 in the afternoon downstairs, right in, in the same building, 466, I went to Zabar's and I worked from 1 o'clock until midnight. And then I went home and I was back at work for 9 a.m. Did they know you had a record? I don't think they knew I had a record, but back in those days, doing a background check wasn't as simple as it is today. Today, with $40 and a credit card, you can do a background check on anyone. All right, so you were motivated, and then what? Um, I was, my, my, the next hurdle I had to pass was drugs, um, and I struggled very hard with drugs. I've done two state bids behind um, my addiction, uh, and it started out real simple, just marijuana and drinking at the age of eight. Um, I've been medicating myself since the age of eight. I remember sitting on the brownstone steps of State Street in Brooklyn, New York, and watching all the other little kids go by to go to school. And I was sitting there eight years old with a loose joint in my mouth and a 40 ounce of Old English 800. And um, I saw nothing wrong with that. To me, the stupid people were the kids walking by going to school because I'm sitting here, I'm feeling great with this beer and I'm feeling great with this joint. And when I'm finished, I'm going to get some more. And so, to me, the, the, the suckers were the working stiff. The good people were the suckers to me. But at, but at, at 26, you suddenly wanted to shake the drugs. Yeah, at, uh, 20, at, at 27, actually. And how did you do that? When I came home, I had a very strong family network. My aunts, my uncles, um, they pretty much took me under their wing, and they showed me how to have a good time without drinking or getting high. Um, I used to go to the uh, Bentley's nightclub, and people would be in the bathroom sniffing cocaine and smoking weed, and people would be at the bar ordering drinks. And I would come in, dressed to the T, and I'd walk up to the bar, and I'd see a young lady, and I'd say, would you like a drink? And she'd say yes. And then when I went to order the drinks, I'd order what she wanted, and my order would be an orange juice with a splash of grenadine. But I, I'm still trying to figure out how you broke it, because I've heard you, as a counselor at Fortune Society, tell young people that, you may that that recovery is difficult because life's going to hit you in the face. Yeah. Well, um, did life hit you in the face? Yes, it did, did. And how did you respond? Um, I think, for me, understanding that my individuality is the is the most precious asset that I have, and so not needing to go with the crowd, not needing you know it's it it a lot of times people fall back into drugs and stuff behind peer pressure or hanging out with the wrong elements being around it and and so for me I had built up such a tolerance that I could stay in the room with the drug and look at people using it and look at them and laugh and say you have no idea what you in for do you I do and I can walk away from it yeah but how you reach that conclusion is the mystery let me let me find out with Kaz how you broke the cycle it wasn't that easy for you no I don't think it's easy for anybody actually but for me you know my point of change was um, on the floor of a cell in a precinct. You know, I, I've been asked this question many times, and uh, I can never really say anything other than epiphany, I guess. Well, I always, I've heard you tell the story about when you were sleeping in Madison Square Park. 
Well, yeah, that was that was something. I mean, that was when I began to change. But really, the best way to uh, to to speak specifically in terms of how I got the internal, the yeah, internal. Well, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't totally internal. I mean, it, it starts externally. It starts with your exposure to people. There's a lot of things you see as a child, but you don't believe. There's a lot of things you hear about, but you, you don't see, so you don't believe. Like that people, you know, su such as I know today, such as yourself, are out there. But I haven't been exposed to them personally when I was a child, so I don't believe it as much. But when I wanted to be, you know, sober and be a better person and stay out of jail, I started to really hang around persons such as yourself, people that were type of people that I wanted to be, you know. Well, share the story about the, the park. Well I, well, I was sleeping in the park, actively using, and I went to uh, Fortune Society because someone told me I could get a metro card there. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, agencies that were giving out metro cards, and if you accumulated enough of them, you could sell them all and get high. So that's why I went to Fortune. And um, I really wasn't ready. You know, and that's what I did. I got a card, and I sold it, and that was that. When I was ready, I was aware of where I could go. So that's what happened. That's how I found Fortune. And what happened there? Well, when I got there, you know, when I was ready, I went to the Fortune Academy. I met a number of uh, people. And I think it's it twofold. You know, I met a number of people that were in, in a professional capacity that were people that I needed to be around. And then I met a number of people at the academy who were just coming out of prison, just coming over the streets, just, just like I was. The academy is the castle. Yeah, the castle. And they were all, you know, from where I'm from. They were all struggling with the same things that I was struggling. And the, the, the part of the formula that I, that I feel makes it so effective is the, the professionals there were once me, you know? So uh, they know what I'm going through. They could probably... And they did anticipate what I was going to go through, the things that I was going to, you know, the barriers I was going to hit, et cetera, et cetera, and they were there to help me get past it. So this was crucial, and I have to say it's a, it's a big part of me making it. Also, you had the woman you met who became your wife, I've heard you say that, that having someone care about you. Well, love is, is also vital. It's something that was missing from us, you know. And a lot of times, you know, you, you experience you, things. Can you accept the love? That's the, the thing. Yeah, well, the thing is, it's, it's a therapeutic thing, you know. You really do have to, like Barry said, you know, therapy is, is invaluable and it, it's inevitable if you're going to be successful. And uh, you have to learn about yourself. You have to learn to like yourself. You have to know about yourself in order to like yourself. And you have to learn how to love yourself or at least live with yourself in order to accept love from someone else. And once you can do that, uh, the love from someone else is like, a, you know, gasoline in a car. So you you're, you're both have been in therapy. Yeah, sure. And as that elaborate on that. It's confidential, actually. <laughs> I, I, I will say this much. <laughs> therapy has been the game changer for me. Um, after coming home from prison in 1991, I found myself sitting on Rackers Island in 2003. And a lot of that had to do with not being able to understand myself. I was going through things and I was experiencing things that I had felt before, but I had no understanding on how to deal with it or why I was feeling the way I was feeling. And therapy has helped me deal with those issues. Therapy has helped me take a better look at myself. It's helped me take a better look of where I want to be. It's given me a clearer picture on how I would like to get there. Um, and I tell the population of formerly incarcerated that it's in their best interest 
to get into therapy. But I've heard you say often to young men who, when you suggest therapy that, that you know that they come from a neighborhood or a background where therapy is... I've heard people say that they can't. I'm not crazy. Yeah, um, I, I and myself. I've always said, well, you, you don't go to therapy because you're crazy. You go to therapy because you want a better life. Um, how do you get past that? You asked me a question a little bit earlier. How did I get to the point where I changed uh, my changed my my ship around? I came in contact with a group of people at Fortune that became my second family: um, Joanne Page, John Jeremy, Stanley Richards. Sherry Goldstein, Danny Saunders, um, you know, these are people, uh, Mark Rodriguez, you know, Tracy Gallagher. These are all people, uh, Peggy Arroyo, these are all people that came into my life. And each one of them bought something that I had never had before. A true unbridled feeling to help me succeed without any strings attached. The only thing they wanted out of life for me was for me to be successful. And they wanted that with the, own, with, with the understanding that I would just pass it on to someone else. And that concept to me was alien. It was totally alien to me. And it has taken me five, six, seven, almost 10 years to be able to look at someone, one of those names that I mentioned, yourself included, and say, I love you. I couldn't do that three years ago. Three years ago, all I could say was F you. And that was my way of showing affection. Um, today, I can honestly look at someone and say, I truly have feelings for you. I love you. I care what happens to you. I worry what happens to you when you leave my presence. And that's alien to some people. There was a point in your life when, clearly from what you said, when you started believing things in your lives would be different than the way your life was going. When you came to that realization and then... You, became, you were counselors at the Fortune Society and you were affecting the lives of other people. There's, there's a point where your own realization of your own life and counseling others comes together, does it not? For me, I think... I think Barry Campbell. Uh, yeah, for me, I think they're intertwined. Um, there's no separating the two. Um, part of my daily job and counseling and talking with these kids helps keep me green. It helps remind me where I come from. It, it helps remind me that if not for, you know, the split of a hair, I could be right back where I used to be. And for me, I need to be reminded of that on a daily basis. And going to, going to Fortune Society where I work does that for me. It reminds me on a daily basis where I don't want to be. Do you, do you tell is your approach telling them your story so they identify with you? Um, not my whole story, but bits and pieces that I think are relevant to them at that time, yes, um, or to whatever situation that they're going through. Um, because when you put people like Casimero and myself in a room, um, you have a wealth of experience. It's all, the majority of it is bad experiences, but we can take those experiences and utilize them to teach other people so that they don't fall into the same experiences that we did. But, but telling your story when their stories are the same, it's not news to them, is it? No, it's not news to them, but being able to 
you know, Kaz mentioned before, you know, when he was a child, he heard about things but didn't experience them for himself, so he didn't believe. It's the same thing with turning your life around. You know, it's a difference between having somebody with a PhD, you know, come into your, your come into an office with a white robe and says, you know, I know what you need to do to fix your life. And then there's a difference between someone like Casimero and myself walking into the office who've come from the same neighborhoods, did the time, been the places that they've been, who is now doing something positive with their life, working, paying taxes, taking care of our family, being a part of the community, and caring about something other than ourselves. When they can see it as something tangible that they can touch, taste, and feel, it, it's no longer this fantasy to them. It's something It's something that can be obtained. It now becomes real to them. But how does it erase the pain that they might be going through? It doesn't erase the pain. What it does is it gives them hope. It mm-hmm. lets them know that there is a chance for them to turn their lives around and be a productive member of society such as Kaz and myself are today. Kaz, there's a woman that came to the castle about two years ago. She always referred to you as her savior. She's a wonderful woman. We call her the princess. What, what was the dynamics? Here you, male and female, age difference by 15 to 20 years, ethnically different. Obviously something happened and you're talking with her. Well, you know, I, I, you know, as Barry was saying, you know, there's, um, there's people that can speak to people and then there's other people that can speak to people and be listened to. You know, when I, you know, when I speak to someone that's going through what I've been through, you know, it's it's recognizable. You know, you you will get someone's attention because whether they know it or not, it, they're looking for people that can speak to them in the manner that Barry and myself can speak to them without our experience. Because this this tells them that you know they're speaking to someone that understands. Is there more? Is the, it sounds like there's more listening than talking on your part. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just like um, counseling is is more listening than talking anyway. But that that holds true to anybody that wants to be an effective speaker. You must be an effective listener. But with Priscilla, you know, um, and I, I mean, I'm I'm not any better than anybody else. I'm certainly not a savior. But um, I will say this much. Priscilla understood that I was genuine, you know, and um, this is what I think this is one of the traits that some of us have um, that make us effective in reaching back and helping others because I, you know, it's, you can reach back all you want, but you have to have the person meet you halfway and be willing to take your hand, you know, and people try to help every day, day in and day out. They really want to help, you know, and and some people uh, having come from where the person they're trying to help is coming from are more effective. That's all. For both of you, I'm sure you've met with people and you say to yourself or to them, they're not ready. How do you deal with that? You wait. I mean, there's nothing you can do. You got to be patient and you got to be, uh, you got to be continuous in your, in your outstretched hand. You got to make sure that person knows it's always going to be there. And, but when somebody's not ready, does that mean they have to fall again, get high again, go to jail again, act it, it, out it, again? It, 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 it depends on that individual. You know, I, I, I've been, you know, associated with Fortune Society since 1991. I've had the same phone number for over 20-some-odd years, and that phone number I've been handing out at Fortune for decades, 
Um, there are people that are ready and then there are people that are not ready. But for the ones that are ready, we're here for you right now. And for the ones that are not ready when you are, we're here also. But it doesn't mean that we can't start working on it. At least let me give you a few snippets and, and let you peek behind the curtain at to what you could obtain if you were ready. Planting seeds. Have you yeah. have you had the experience of people who have come to you and you've listened to them and they've gone out and gotten arrested and then come back two or three years later and say now? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've, we, we have a young gentleman we've been working with since he was 17. He's now 26. And he's still coming by every now and then saying, hey, how you doing? Then he goes back out and he bleeds a little bit, um, you know. And, and the reason why people like Kaz and myself really understand is because we remember what it's like to be 17. I am the ruler of the universe, and I have all the answers at 17. And we understand that. But what about somebody who's 50 years old who's just done 25 years in prison? That's a very different it's a, very, it, it's a very different person. But listen, the only thing that changes are the faces. The situations stay the same. The foundation problems are still there. How am I going to eat? I need a job. You know, uh, uh, am I going to find the right group of people to hang out with so I don't fall into the same thing that I fell in before? You know, the foundation issues are the same. The thing that changes are the people and the way that they address the situations that they're dealing with at the time. Let me, let me just add to that. The question about the, the persons that are older coming from prison, you you would be surprised how similar they are to the to the younger people coming out of prison that did less time. It's, it, a lot of the people that are older coming from prison are like, uh, they're like, they've been stuck, you know? So it's not like that. Prison doesn't exactly inspire development. So a lot of people are exactly where they were when they went in. So it's not like it's a big jump most of the time. A lot of times you're dealing with the same person, whether young or old. And like, like Barry said, the obstacles are really the focal point. Thank you, Barry and Kaz, for your stories and shedding light on how the path to prison early in life leads to antisocial behavior, drugs, and the prison system, how childhood circumstances and growing up under the state can set people on that path. Society offered me a variety of opportunities and the tools they threw me a God in me to be a better man than I ever envisioned I could be. Help me see who I'm meant to be rather than who I gotta be. They building people, not prisons. What they unlocked in me was so electrifying. And